0: It was Saturday, June 8, 1996, and the St. George Dragons walked off the field at Parramatta Oval, beaten 20-16 to by the Eels. Their fifth loss in succession had seen them fall to 13th position, and the pre-season predictions of doom appeared to be playing out. The following weekend, however, would see victory against the competition-leading Roosters, before an unlikely but unforgettable run to the grand final. There in wait was a team who had done it in a much easier and more straightforward manner the dominant manly sea eagles. This is part three of the Optus Cup, the 30th chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy?
1: Mate, fantastic. How are you?
0: Yeah, pretty good. We're back into 1996. This is part three. In this episode, we're going to look in depth at the two grand finalists, Manly and St George. And I want to say at the start, I'm worried with this one that I'm not going to give Manly their just due. I just feel that the St George story in 1996 is so captivating. It just seems to make for a, a much richer narrative than this Manly machine who... We're on such a great three-year run, but I'm going to try to do them justice, but...
1: Well, if there's one place that does them justice, mate. it's the record books.
0: Well, that's it, and let's start there, because three grand finals in a row, one premiership out of it. They were very lucky to get this premiership, although, you know, they were clearly the best team all year, but without it, like, that would have surely been the best team to never win a comp.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty poor record one out of three when you break it down to brass tacks.
0: Yeah, and... When I was thinking about that, it, it made me think about our discussion about the 94 Raiders. And in that discussion, we considered them a separate and distinct team from 89-90. But both of these squads ended up with one premiership. With Canberra, you had this team of all-time greats. Like It's still now unfathomable how stacked that team was. This Manly team, they were a machine. They went on this great two-year run. They were kind of waning by the end of 97. But when I look at that squad, I don't see many all time greats.
1: No, they were more all round than the Canberra squad, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if this is the case, what is the better achievement or which team underachieved more?
1: Yeah, I mean, Canberra had some injuries and stuff like that as well. I think Manly, like, they had the opportunities and didn't grab them.
0: Yeah, it's funny. And it just goes to show you how tough winning a comp is. So Canberra. Mm. In 95, you know, had the same record as Manly throughout the regular season and then just came up against the Canterbury brick wall in the semi-final, and, you know, Manly suffered the same fate. Then in 96, you know, Ricky Stewart, Bradley Clyde are gone for the year and, you know, Canberra's season is finished. They did well to hang on and make the semis. Whereas Manly, they were so good in 95 and they just faded. 96, they win it and then 97... You know, we all know what happened there. So I think that's my main takeaway. It's just really tough to win premierships. And there's not much between a Parramatta winning three in a row to Manly getting one from three.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things, though, that everybody that watches the game recognises the squad for what it was though, despite the record.
0: Yeah. And I think it is one of those cases where the sum is greater than the parts. And I think the coach had a lot to do with that. So how about we get in to the Manly squad which was interesting this year for a number of reasons. I want to start with the veteran class, two of them in particular, Cliff Lyons and Des Hasler. So Hasler was 35, Cliff Lyons was 34 in 1996. And I was thinking about it like, surely there aren't many teams throughout rugby league history that have carried two players this old in the same squad. They're the sixth oldest combination in rugby league history. Probably no surprise that the top five have all occurred in the last 10 years. So you had the Morris Twins in 2021, both 35. In 2018 at the Sharks, you had Paul Gallen, 37, and Luke Lewis, 35. You also had Cameron Smith and Billy Slater, who were both 35. In 2017, you had Paul Gallen, 36, and Chris Hyington, 35, at the Sharks. And Danny Badiris and Craig Gower for the Knights in 2013, uh, we're both 35. But then, you know, you go back to 96, you've got Hasler and Lyons. So when you think about the football today, obviously sports science has improved and players are, are taking care of their bodies a lot more. This 1996 period, it was just a very brief window in time where teams could carry two veterans like this because of the unlimited interchange.
1: Yeah, exactly. But let's not forget that 35 then was almost thirty-nine forty now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is even more incredible that Cliff Lyons went on to play till he was 38.
1: Well, I think Cliff Lyons is made in a laboratory somewhere. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it's so funny because all the talk throughout the year about Hasler and Lyons was that this would be their last year at Manly. Both had basically been told that that was it. They were, you know, given this wait and see. And. There was no offer on the table for 1997 and, you know, there were newspaper reports talking about it as if they'd both be retiring at the end of the year. So Des did go around in 1997, but that was with Western Suburbs, whereas Lines proved them wrong, managed to get a new contract with Manly. Like, really incredible.
1: Yeah, man. It's a very nostalgic era for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. But the funny thing to me is, in some of the discourse, you had the typical kind of, you know, oh, it's pretty tough, isn't it? That, you know, Manly can't offer these two blokes a contract. Gladys Craven in The Sun Herald said, it's tough when Manly have to let them go to look to the future. Like, Manly were ultimately vindicated in changing their minds on Cliff Lyons, but I think it's absolutely not tough that they would prioritize their future over two (laughs) 35-year-olds. Yeah. And uh Des Hasler actually made a pitch to the club to retain him for nineteen ninety seven, and that was by offering his services in a ten year deal where for the last presumably nine of those years, they could put him into any role they wanted him to, and you know, into development or coaching or, or whatever they schools liaison, what, whatever they wanted him to do. But
1: Marketing Officers is where you start.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh but they declined that deal and he was on the move for nineteen ninety seven. And then along with those two, you also had Owen Cunningham, who was off to North Queensland for 1997, but you know also a veteran who'd been there a long time and gets a nice premiership, a fitting parting gift, as well as David Gillespie, who was assumed to be retiring, but went around again in 1997.
1: I always loved uh, Cunningham. Just a real... Uh, he had that Newcastle Knights early era vibe of just a Toiler, David Mullane-esque.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I really liked his wholehearted efforts.
0: And he was, like, loved within Manly. Uh, He was, you know, a fan favourite, and within the team and within the club, he was treasured. So Peter Peters said of him, when he leaves Brookvale, he'll have the respect of the entire club. If we win it this year, it'll be a premiership OJ deserves. But I want to get back to that idea of the... Unlimited interchange, giving new life to some of these veterans and allowing to build your team a bit differently. And I don't think anyone exploited this better than Bozo in this era. And the best evidence for that is if you look at the grand final squad, you had an interchange bench of Neil Tierney, Craig Hancock, Des Hasler, and Cliff Lyons. So wow. one prop in Tierney and then a winger, a utility and a 5
1: if veterans' careers can be prolonged, it's a big uh, positive for the unlimited interchange.
0: Yeah, it is one positive, but then it, it also like it's a bit wacky to you know like have three backs on your bench, and and I don't think there's many coaches who utilised it as well as Bozo did. So he would start with you know Nick Kosseff at five eighth, Owen Cunningham at lock, then move Kosseff back to the back row, Cunningham would play prop, Cliff Lines would come on, and. Just being able to inject a player like Cliff Lyons, it was just this weapon up your sleeve that you could just, you know, see how the game was going and pick your moments to put him in.
1: Well, Bozo had three backs on the bench and he had a back in the forwards as well in Menzies. So yeah, he had backs everywhere.
0: Well, then let's turn it to that back row and Menzies in particular. But the thing is, it wasn't just Menzies. So Terry Lamb, in his grand final preview, identified a strength that Manley had. I'll, I'll read this quote. Manly's second rowers are much like their centres. If you put Steve Menzies and Daniel Gartner in the centres, they would do the same job as Craig Innes and Terry Hill, as good as Innes and Hill are. And then you had like really big backs as well, so Innes Hill, Hopper Whitey, Danny Moore. So it was just a very mobile, versatile squad.
1: Danny Moore was nearly a back rower in the backs.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Hopper was like one of the first wingers who really did a lot of that grunt work and was taking hit-ups. Before it was commonplace for wingers to do that.
1: Yeah, it was him and Sailor that changed the game in that regard for mine.
0: Yeah. And it's funny thinking of Menzies. And I want to, you know, combine this discussion of Cliff Lyons with Steve Menzies because it's a well known fact of rugby league the, the combination they had together and, you know, how remarkable that was. And I feel we kind of harp on the Menzies side of it a bit more because I think anyone who thinks of Steve Menzies, it's that era you think of. And that does a disservice to a player as great as he was who had a career that went a decade after Lions left. But I don't know. I I don't think of that like 2000s Menzies in the same way that I think of 90s Menzies.
1: 90s Menzies was electric. Mm. But, I mean, what makes me laugh about the whole thing is... There was one move, Cliffy drifting to the line, uh, him running at a hole. Everyone knew it was coming. It was just couldn't be stopped. Well,
0: that's it. That is the singular gift of Cliff Lyons. Like, it's a quality that he had better than any of his peers at 5'8 in that era. Players who he we would put ahead of him overall, no one had what Cliff Lyons had in that regard.
1: There's something artistic about his work. Like, that's why he's beloved, not just for the, you know, hilarious hair, that late 80s hair with (laughs) Tina Turner and the mustache and then the smoking stories and all that. That's just part of it. It's the pure timing, like Rodney Dangerfield level timing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what I want to say, I think that also does a bit of a disservice to Menzies because, like, how much did Menzies prolong Cliff Lyons' career? You know, I said they were unsure that they were we're going to offer him a deal for 1997 suddenly he's putting menzies through for 20 tries for the season and menzies was actually manly's leading try scorer for 1996 after being the competition leading try scorer in 1995 i think it's very easy if you're a manly executive to say why are we thinking of breaking up this combination like you just let it run for as long as it's working don't you
1: I really like what you said there because his whole running is on a different level because it wasn't like Cliffy never put other blokes through holes, but to that level where this guy's approaching Ken Over and try scoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so I don't wanna sell Menzies short because he was an amazing player. And there was a lot of discussion in nineteen ninety six as, you know, he was approaching his peak as to what was it about him that made him so special. And in one article it broke down the various aspects of his game, and it put up a number of positions and then refuted them. Like one was speed. And as it turns out, he was Manly's second quickest forward. Uh, and surprisingly, number one was Des Hasler. Wow. Which just goes to show you what an athlete Hasler was. But to so this article, which was in, inside sport that year, uh, ultimately put it down to endurance. So um, the club trainers at Manly said that he had the ability to maintain speed for an exceptionally long time. And I think that, you know, gave him a real advantage, especially in the back half of the game. He was a very different forward, especially for the era. And, you know, we've talked about it before, like the whole, you know, he's a center, not a second rower, and how ultimately silly that argument is when he's scoring 20 tries a year and propelling Manly to this great dominance. But there is something to it when you think about his rep career, which maybe isn't as like, decorated as you might think it would be. So Phil Gould, in that same Inside Sport article, you know, gave a bit of a constructive criticism of Menzies, saying that, like, it's great that he plays that way in club games, but you can't do that style of play in Origin. It just doesn't work. And forwards have to, you know, carry more of the burden and play in a more orthodox role. And so in total, he played 20 Origins and 14 Tests. So that's a pretty fair rep career, but just when you consider that his origins ran from 95 to 2006, you know, there's there's a lot of missed games in there that he might have played.
1: It's funny how his test career was so abundant, you know, scoring-wise. Unfortunately, it actually proves Gus right on the toughness of origin. versus. Yeah, test yeah, people.
0: yeah. Well, that's the thing. I guess he could play more of that role in the test environment. But the thing about Manley's back row is it wasn't just Menzies. And – uh I want to take the time to give some appreciation for Daniel Gartner, who, when he was playing, I thought about him the same way I thought about someone like, you know, Shannon Nevin, just like an okay player in a team of superstars. But just watching his games in 1996 in preparation for this, I'm like, my God, he was a good player.
1: That back row overtook north's back row from the early 90s yeah as a supreme team that was so good
0: yeah and i mean he was maybe more of a traditional back rower than menzies but still like super fast a great ball runner and like the fact that all the attention was on menzies meant that they had this other weapon and you know cliff lions utilized him almost as well as he did menzies and he was brilliant the preliminary final against the sharks in particular which we're going to talk about in the concluding episode of this chapter, like he was, you know, the difference between the two sides in the end. So a true breakout Mm -hmm. year for Daniel Gartner. And it was a year where he started just a a handy role player. Up to that point, he played much of his football off the bench, was given a starting role midway through the year and basically never looked back. So finished in the top 10 in the Daly M count. At the year's end, he was rated the 33rd best player in the game by Peter Falingos. And he went into grand final day, second favorite in the Clive Churchill medal, you know, second to Jeff Toovey, who eventually won it. So, you know, by the end of the year, he'd arrived as a force. But it's funny that his career never really went on like it might have.
1: Yeah, strange.
0: So he played one test for Australia that year against the Port Moresby, not popular New Guinea team. And that was basically his rep career. I I think he had a few games for City, but never played Origin, never played another test.
1: It was an era where there was so much competition in his position there.
0: Yeah, exactly. But I was just blown away watching his games this week. So yeah, Daniel Gartner, super player. And completing that dominant back row was Nick Koseff, who had a very, very unlucky career with injuries, as we all know. But at this point in time, all the talk was that this was possibly going to be like an all-time great back row combination.
1: I'm not sure if you know where he was from, though. (laughs) Isn't it sad that the first thing you say about a bloke is our unlucky career with injuries? It's really sad. Yeah, yeah. Because he was a gun player.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, really good. And the fact that he was being used as a 5'8", a lot of the time in this season, tells you something. But um, between the three of them, it was just a force of a back row. And then on top of those, you had, you know, bench depth. You had someone like Solomon Hamono there who was like really kicking on. And Hamono actually went to my school. He was in year 12 when I was in year 7. And I watched him win the A-grade um, competition that year. And you just knew, like, he was just so good. He was massive. like, And he just looked, like, so intimidating. And, yeah, he, he was brilliant. <laughs>
1: He was a new generation of athlete. It felt like at the time, yeah, yeah, sort of like when Sailor dropped on the wing. It felt like that was Solomon, mm. and he was scary, right? Like the torpedo. Tackling. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. And then you factor in a player like Mark Carroll, who I never rated him really. Like I, I thought he was like well behind blokes like Lazarus and-, and Harrigan, and I always considered his career in those Super League terms. It was just like he kind of got hot and had the manly boost. And, you know, got all his rep games when, you know, the Super League players were out. But I can't deny how good he was for those years of the manly run. Like, he was intimidating. He made great meters. He was a force.
1: I always hated him because of the Chiefs situation. Yeah. Um, But then later on, I I grew to love him.
0: You know, he made a kangaroo tour playing for South. So it's not like he you know, was a dud player and was only carried along by Manly. But no, 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 no. I don't think he would have stood out in a middle-of-the-road team like in the same way that he did at Manly. But so as much as they had good backs, when I think of Manly, it's kind of the inverse of that Canberra team. Like, it's the forwards that I think of first, you know, along with the halves.
1: To have, like, Gillespie there as well, though, like, you want to talk about a legend of the game.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and another one of those players that there's – Retirement stories written about him like every year for four years in a row. (laughs) But we'll turn to Manly's season, which was not as impressive as 1995, where they only lost two games, not including the grand final. So they lost four games throughout the season, were undefeated at Brookvale, and that was after being undefeated away in 1995. So a a pretty comprehensive two-year run. And I don't know what your memories were of that season, but I just remember it It just seemed like it was a foregone conclusion in 1996.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Again, it's a mystery in my brain.
0: Yeah, and there's some things that have surprised me As I've, you know, been looking back over the season, like the fact that East won their first 10 games of the year and, you know, were leading the comp, I couldn't remember them being like a dominant team in that season, but clearly they were, they faded late, but it was still a top four finish and we're going to be talking about them a bit more in the next episode, but Manly didn't have it all their own way throughout the season. But, you know, in my mind, it just seemed they were clearly the best team. And I think because of that, maybe like there's not a lot of individual moments throughout that year that stick in my mind. And the one that does the most is the Andrew Johns red hair match.
1: (laughs) This is a game, especially back then, the anti-lairiness is just in the DNA and to come out with red hair, you're just asking for a bad game, aren't you?
0: Yeah, yeah. And in his book, he gives a, a detailed account of the incident, which... Basically, his girlfriend at the time was a hairdresser student and asked to do it for a bit of practice, and he said yes. And then the way he talks about it, like, it's pretty clear it was a cry for help. Like, he was in a real bad mental place. He was off the rails, and, you know, he was blowing with the players at training. He was avoiding Malreely. Like, he was, you know, in a really bad place. And by his own admission, this was... Like you know, he wasn't processing it in his head, but it was just his attitude was I don't give a shit, and you know, and it duly showed on the field.
1: <laughs> but it's up there with the white boots for Touchstone Games. Like it's just
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in general, bleach and peroxide and dye. It, as you <laughs> said, you're just asking for trouble.
1: But I mean, these days it's hard to get any traction with Lariness, but uh, <laughs> it can still be done.
0: But yeah, so as I said, I don't want to sell Manly's achievements short and we are going to be talking about them a lot more in our semi-final and grand final episode next week. But, you know, we've also talked about them, you know, in our last season recap and I'm sure there will be plenty more Manly discussion down the track. So, I wanted to turn to their grand final opponent St George, who it was a really remarkable achievement them making a grand final that year. If they had gone into one, it would have been like one of the great rugby league stories.
1: David and Goliath in terms of talent.
0: Yeah. And at the start of the year, it was looking very unlikely that they would be even able to field a competitive team, much less make a grand final. And that was disappointing for the fact that it was their 75th anniversary season. And for a team like the Dragons, that kind of means a bit more, you know, like I kind of feel that St. George, more than any other club, is, like, bound to its history. Like, I don't think even Souths draw on the past as much as St. George do.
1: Or well, the record's Bradman-esque. I mean, <laughs> I think bound's an understatement.
0: And when I think about the comparison between St. George and Souths, I think that's part of it. With Souths, You know, they've had long periods without success, but there's a number of different successful eras. You know, you've got the 20s, and then you've got the, you know, early 50s and and the late 60s. So there's a few eras that you can choose from. Whereas with St. George, it, it all comes down to this one incredible run. And the fact that all those players in 1996 You know, nearly all of the ones from the 11 in a row were still around and, you know, still hanging around the club. And there was always this tension with the current players who felt they were, you know, in the shadows or being compared to these greats of the past. As Roy Masters said in an article that year, St. George is a club which draws its strength from the past. The ghosts of the great players measure the St. George coach daily. And that St. George coach was not the one it was supposed to be. We discussed it in an earlier chapter, but Rod Reddy, of course, was slated to take over from Brian Smith for 1996, only to jump ship to the Adelaide Rams. So late November, rumors circulated that he was going. The club denies it. On the 15th of December, on the 21st of December, he told the board and the next day, which was the last training session for the year, he told the players and Rod Reddy was out.
1: It was the right move in the end, wasn't it?
0: It was definitely the right move for St. George. I feel for Rod Reddy, it was probably going to be a short coaching career wherever he went. But in the aftermath, he gave his reasons for leaving and it all came down to the fact that the league's club GM, Danny Robinson, had told him that the Dragons were on their way out. Rod Reddy's quote is, I still feel that I made the right decision in view of the fact that Danny Robinson, who was the general manager, indicated to me that he didn't think St. George would be there in two to three years because they could no longer compete in the marketplace. (laughs) That statement was refuted by Robinson. It was refuted by everyone else at the club. But (laughs) in this situation, it's usually one that I would think it was... Like, crossed wires. Like, I feel like there's an astonishing amount of crossed wires within this Super League saga, but it's possibly just, like, football players only hearing what they want to hear.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's the old players and coaches crossing their own wires, really.
0: (laughs) But the thing, to my mind, that gives it some credence is the fact that it was the Leagues Club guy who was telling him this.
1: He's just trying to get rid of St. George so he can get fully into the Pokies game.
0: It's just the old story, you know. This would be so much easier to run if we didn't have this football club getting in the way. (laughs) But the situation wasn't helped by the way Reddy aimed up in the press. And, you know, talking about the fact that St. George were a sinking ship. You know, he had to make a decision for his future. He said the people in charge didn't care enough about the football side. So there was some more... Evidence about the league's club football club tension. Then Brian Smith chimes in. You know, we've mentioned the quote he had about a smell of Newtown about the place. <laughs> and Reddy said, When I made my decision to go to Adelaide, Brian said to me, I didn't want to tell you I told you so because I knew you wanted to coach. So there's a bit of bad blood there with, you know, both of them hitting out in the press. The Dragons fired back on Smith and said, We released him on request to better himself and get more dollars. Then he went away and criticised us. That was disappointing. We were pretty hostile about it. Reddy was a, a club legend, had been in the system as an assistant coach for a number of years. It's just funny that you would just so easily, like, torch all that.
1: Well, I respect bridge burning, and rugby league is the ultimate bridge burning training ground. So to me, that's quite mild for rugby league standards.
0: And the funny thing is, like, from Robbie Farrer down, the bridge burning is always temporary. And despite this like (laughs) slanging match at the press, Reddy was back in the fold like as early as July when there there was a Club Legends Day and he was there at Cogra Oval with the rest of them.
1: If you're a Club Legend, like bridges can be erected and torched and erected and torched as many times as you need.
0: (laughs) I knew about Rod Reddy from my dad. He was one of his favorite players. So as a kid, I was always told that Rod Reddy was a great player. But not having that relationship with Rod Reddy, like even to this day, I'm like, Rod Reddy, he dogged us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He seems like an old school guy, which I like, but I mean, it seems like he was in a different generation of coaches compared to the Brian Smiths of the world at that time.
0: Yeah, and that's the way the game was going. And so on that note, let's turn to the bloke who ultimately got the job after Reddy left, which was David Waite. So Brian Johnson, who had only recently taken over as CEO, did a really smart thing of... Putting a set of criteria in place because he knew that some of the people on the selection committee who were former players were likely to, you know, pick one of their own teammates as coach. The eternal job for the boys (laughs) issue. So Johnson set out a set of criteria to, as he said it, take the emotion out of the decision.
1: Which was a buzzword of that era. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But uh, some of the other candidates in the mix tells you something about this mentality. So names being floated around were Noel Cleal, who was last heard making up nicknames for his Fijian team rather than learning their names. (laughs) Steve Martin, who I think that's a kind of Anthony Griffin equivalent. Like he's going to get you to a certain point, but you're not winning a comp with Steve Martin as your coach. Then you had John Doherty and you know Johnny King, club legend, who you know hadn't coached at a senior level for a while and was probably not going to be the right pick. Warren Ryan said that he wouldn't apply for the position, but he'd speak to them if they called him. But they didn't.
1: <laughs> Is this guy like ever not playing some sort of power <laughs> game? Like...
0: <laughs> but so David Wait, who was given the job at Newcastle midway through 1991, took them to fourth in 1992, uh, and then you know trailed off in 1993 and 1994. So at that point, he'd had a 44% win rate. So not a whole heap of success, but he was quite well rated. And it was Jeff Carr who set the ball rolling, despite the fact that he'd lost his job at the club. He rang Warren Lockwood to say that David Waits on the market and saying there were a lot of good reports about him.
1: He was respected in Newcastle, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, getting them to fourth in 1992, that's like a pretty fair achievement. And his case was cemented further with the Bozo tick of approval. So Bozo and Waite were 1973 Kangaroo teammates, and Fulton actually called the Dragons to recommend David Waite as the coach.
1: See, like, that blows me away. Like, that's up there with the Wayne Bennett played a test match factoid because I had no idea that he was a test player. Yeah, yeah,
0: me. like, he, he, he kind of, he doesn't seem it. When I think of David Waite, to me, I think school teacher coach. Yeah, yeah. But I thought he was an incredible coach. And when I named my best ever Dragons team, I had him as my coach. And I thought he got dutted at St. George of Lawra. Like, I think we could have had a golden era with David Waite there. But I rated him so highly.
1: He had a calmness about him as well, mm. which I was liking a coach.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so he was a pretty unanimous choice for coach of the year in nineteen ninety-six. Bob Fulton went as far as to say that his achievement in getting Saints to the grand final was the best in rugby league history. I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fair job. And so we should get into why. And part of this we've discussed with our holdouts episode, the fact that, you know, you had Talis sitting out the year. Players like the Stevens brothers, Nathan Brown, Anthony Mundine, all sitting out part of the season before coming back to the team. But basically, no club was harder hit by Super League in terms of player drain than St. George. So it was basically split down the middle with Super League and ARL signings, which was something you didn't get at any other club. The court loss meant that most of those players didn't leave until 1997. They lost a few, you know, Dallas. Of course, Rod Mabon, Tony Priddle, Jason Donnelly. But for the most part, the team stayed together for 1996 at least. But going into the off-season, that wasn't looking likely. And it just compounded the issues with Rod Reddy leaving. So Mark Coyne in the Rugby League Week that year set it up, the situation the club was in. Uh, He said, "'The lowest point from my point of view was our presentation night last November. "'We finished last year strongly, "'and I was sure we were ready to give the next season a real shake.' The night included a video featuring some of the tries we scored during the season. We scored some great ones and it was clear that guys like Noel Goldthorpe, Anthony Mundine and Gordon Tallis were ready to really kick on, knowing they weren't going to be around at a time when they were about to peak. May what should have been a celebration, a really sad night. So you're going into this off-season of uncertainty, then the coach quits. Jeff Hardy said that it was disheartening at training because You'd get there and you'd find that this bloke had gone, and then the next day another bloke had gone, and you had no idea who was gonna be in the team for the following year.
1: He's a real glue guy, Jeff Hardy.
0: Oh, I love Jeff Hardy. Someone I probably didn't appreciate enough when he was playing. Like I didn't like the way Waite would start Hardy at Hooker and have Brown off the bench, but like looking back, he's just such a like a genuine good guy, and like just someone that was so important to that team. Hell yeah. But so they gradually started to trickle back. So Chris Quinn was the first player to come back, then Mundine, and then gradually they were all back. But it just meant that it was an off-season of upheaval. They hadn't had a full pre-season together. You had players at different clubs. You had, you know, all this stuff going on. It was really hard to get any cohesion going within the team. But one player they did have was Mark Coyne, who... In watching old games and researching this story, I, I realize I, I really underrated Coin both as a player and a leader. You know, we've talked about Mark Coin before. I don't think he was, you know, an all-time great centre. And maybe he was never a top five centre. I think he was definitely, like, you know, in the top ten centres in the game at this point.
1: Well, you hope so. He was playing Origin every year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that says something. But I don't think he's regarded in the same class as you know other players of his era but he was like a a really effective center and in terms of a leader he was basically the flow of the dragons in terms of holding the keys to their arl or super league future so anthony mundine said that there was a players meeting in 95 when there was talk of the club jumping ship to super league and in mundine's words if it wasn't for coin they all would have gone but you know coin basically convinced enough of them to stay that you know the club didn't go and you know they were left in the situation where they were basically split down the middle and at this point with you know players leaving and the coach going he was feeling really disillusioned and and he'd actually had an offer from the roosters for 1996 and you know he was expressing disappointment that he hadn't taken that up which that's an interesting sliding doors kind of thing if he'd gone to the roosters you know strengthened their backs at the same time as getting to play you know With someone like Freddie, like what does that do to his legacy? But in terms of the Dragons, he was really crucial to their revival for 1996 just because of that leadership. And it all started with a meeting at the Leagues Club with David Waite at the start of the year. In Waite's words, It was nothing flash. We met in the snack bar of the club. I knew I had to get a feeling for how the leader of the club felt about things. We talked about leadership and the sort of things that he wanted kept at the club. And this conversation went into the nitty gritty, as wait goes on. Even the small things, like goose of the week, for us it was a beginning in what had to be done. More evidence of the power of the goose of the week shirt in rugby league.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very simple, blokes. I love it. Endearing.
0: I know. It's the things that work in rugby league. I guess it's like, you know, the equivalent of like free pizza at the office or something. These little things can actually make a big difference. But it's just so funny that like they're grown men who are bonding over a Goose of the Week shirt.
1: (laughs) Well, you got the nudie run is the most important. Yeah, 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 of course. Followed by the Goose (laughs) of the Week.
0: But before we move on to their season, there's just one player I want to talk about because to me... This player is what I think of when I think about the Dragons in 1996, and that's Dean Raper. Do you have any memory at all of Dean Raper?
1: No, I don't.
0: So he actually is no relation to Johnny Raper at all. He is related to George Raper, the colonial artist who came out with the first fleet, but his rugby league bona fides start and end with him. So he was a Cronulla Jr. that made his way to the Dragons debuted in 1996 and he looked so good he just burst onto the scene and it was like oh cool we've got our fullback and it's funny this shows you like how unsophisticated my rugby league brain was in 1996 I was 15 I was old enough to have a bit more awareness than I did but like I remember when Rake was a few games into his season There was some article in a Big League or something that was talking about the fact that he wasn't related to Johnny Raper and, you know, he was saying that he gets asked all the time if he's related to Johnny Raper. I remember there was this line in the article that was like, you know, it might not be before long that people are asking Johnny if he's related to Dean. (laughs) And I just remember going like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, yeah, before long, people are going to wonder if Johnny Raper is related to Dean Raper. Cool, yeah, we got our fullback, you know, like (laughs) the greatest players of all time, but, you know, we got Dean Raper but he was so good in 1996 and it just like that was basically the extent of his top grade rugby league career you know so he played you know for the next couple of seasons but i think only had like six or seven games over the course of those two seasons was forced to retire because of injury at the end of 1998 and you know that was it he was done but i'm sure other dragons fans of my vintage will have fond memories of dean raper in 1996 but I'm not going to go too deep on the Dragon squad. Maybe I can uh, save that for my own time. I want to, you know, keep some objectivity here. And we are going to discuss a lot of these players over the course of the next episode in a bit. But just to touch on their season. So they started the year really strong, like, you know, won three out of their first four games. And it was looking like, you know, once the players came back that maybe they could, you know, do the unthinkable and overcome this you know, horror off season. So that all started when Mundine came back in a game against the defending premiers Canterbury, where he, you know, tore them apart and suddenly there was all this buzz. And I think this might be the origins of old legs daily, even though that comment didn't come till the following year. He had this great game against the Dogs, then was coming up against the Raiders, and there was talk in the press of, you know, like Mundine will be pressing for representative claims and he's got a real chance to show what he can do against Laurie Daly. And as always, like Mundine's biggest problem is his mouth. So after that Canterbury game, you know, he was asked about his performance and he said, I was hoping to spend 1996 just playing first grade and get a shot at the representative games next year, but now I reckon I might be a chance this year. It's like, just shut up, you know, and just play good for the whole season and then, you know, see if they pick you, you know, like.
1: I think his biggest problem is his derivative nature. He just had to copy off American sports people, Muhammad Ali, and just do a real cheap version of this brash thing. Yeah, yeah. Instead of just being himself, who apparently is a good bloke. Yeah, yeah. If he wasn't always trying to be someone else, there wouldn't have been these problems.
0: Yeah, like, you're so right. And it just, it always felt forced. Like, you don't mind the brashness if it's... I think of, like, Wendell Saylor, even. I think he has some of the same problem, but I also think he's more of a naturally brash person than Mundine was. Like, it, it didn't... Mad Dog McDougal. <laughs> yeah. Like, for me, Sailor, it didn't seem as forced.
1: Nah. If he was just his humble, off-camera self, he would have been loved by everybody.
0: Yeah, and he is. Like, he's still uh, well-loved in the St. George community. As it turns out, he couldn't even string it together for a full season. Like, he came good in a big way towards the back end of the year. But this came after, like, a mid-season slump. There's a lot going on off the field that we'll get to shortly. But, you know, I think at 20 years old, you know, just finally cementing himself in first grade and, you know, being a key part of that team, it was the time to just, like, let his play do the talking.
1: It was so exciting though, like when Benji debuted, just with the stepping and yeah. the agility, it was it was incredible to watch. He
0: was a great player, a great player, one of my favourites, despite the mundane experience, which, you know, is, is a, a rocky road. But when that camera game came along, if the pre-game hype was mundane versus daily, by the end of the game, it was a completely different story with a wild game at Cogra that saw Quentin Pongia and John Lomax both get sent off. A number of incidents with the referee that at one point saw Brett Mullins trying to lead the team off the field and just general ugliness all around. Um, Just to touch on the Lomax (laughs) send-off. I don't know if you saw his appearance at the judiciary in that sea eagles fan 96 recap but they interviewed him outside phillips street and asked about the suspension he ended up getting four weeks for that uh got six but they asked him about it and and lomax said i guess it's just my tackling style
1: (laughs) there's something brilliant about the lack of remorse in that era No hint of I might change it, I might try and stay on the field. <laughs> no,
0: it's, it's just my tackling style. What can you do? You're going to cock four-week suspensions from time <laughs> to time. But funnily enough, it wasn't the you know twin send-offs in that game that caused all the controversy. So uh, one of the problems was the crowd with some Congress spectators throwing beer bottles onto the field, to which Laurie Daly said, It's fine for people to scream out what they wanted us from the outer, but I pull up a bit when they start throwing beer bottles. They don't need to resort to that. They're the actions of a bloody idiot, (laughs) which is very true. And Dragons fans or a section of Dragons fans in that era were a, a bit of an issue with the following week Roy Masters reporting that the club had uncovered a secret plan to smuggle Skull back into games by... Dressing him up in a wig and glasses.
1: <laughs> I'm always giving you Skull um, insults because it makes me laugh, but he's been featured in this series a bit much too oh. often for my liking. Yeah. <laughs> so, in, in what year was Skull banned?
0: Uh, it was early 90s.
1: Right. And I'm trying to smuggle him back in instead of uh, ostracizing him.
0: I just, I will never get it. Like, he's still like to. Admittedly, this is like a small handful of dickheads, or I hope it is, but like he's still held in this like reverence by certain Dragons fans. It's pathetic, but anyway, you're right. That is enough skull talk. So let's continue with the controversy. So it was another example of a Super League club coming up against a referee and drama ensuing. So this is probably about as inflammatory and controversial as bradley clyde gets but in the aftermath he said of referee paul mcblaine it wasn't really a game by the end it was a shame jesus but then he went on to say that you know there was some fiery incidents between the two teams and bradley clyde said of mcblaine a more experienced referee would have closed it down early in the first half so you know no onus on the players to avoid those confrontations and you know
1: I've seen so many experienced referees control John Lomans over the years. (laughs) It's like those ones that used to control Les Boyd. Everyone was under control at all times.
0: But it was again, you know, we talked about it with the Canterbury-Norths game when, you know, similar accusations of anti-Super League bias were raised. On the same day that the Cogra incident happened against Canberra, Penrith lost a game to Newcastle and Roy Simmons in the aftermath said, We like to entertain people. and We weren't allowed to play an entertaining style of football because for the whole game, he let Newcastle stand all over us. I'm looking forward to playing Cronulla next week, another Super League team.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry, Liberace. Um, Roy Simmons, (laughs) the ultimate entertainer.
0: (laughs) So it's a regrettable comment. And Royce knew that. In the aftermath, he said, I shouldn't have said that thing about Cronulla. But he did make a valid point where he said, there's three Super League refs who should be back on the field for a start. And once again, the decision of the ARL to not bring the the Super League referees back into the fold, it just sets up this kind of environment. Like, I don't want to give a free pass to players, and especially coaches, who should know better than to inflame a situation like this. But, you know, it's one easy thing the ARL could have done.
1: Yeah, no brainer.
0: But as it turns out, that Canberra game that the Dragons went on to win, as you'd hope they would with Canberra down two front rowers and down to 11 men. That game was about as good as it got for the early season. They, you know, were coming fifth after that win, but the season kind of fell apart from there. And, you know, mid-season they were coming 13th, and it looked like they reverted to what everyone expected them to do that season. I mentioned the drop in form of Anthony Mundine. Noel Goldthorpe wasn't playing particularly well, and... Not much was going right for them. Uh, One rare shining light in this mid-season period was Chris Quinn picking up a M point in their loss to Manly. The comment about his vote was always in the thick of the action, but several readers raised the minor issue that Chris Quinn wasn't actually playing in that game. (laughs) So a young Ruan Sims... um, (laughs)
1: I mean um was it a typo with the name and he meant another player or was it just a complete fraud Yeah well,
0: like that didn't come out but like how can we you know when we talk about our Hall of Fame discussions and using like you know Dalian awards and positional awards how can we use them as a Hall of Fame marker when this shit happens so often
1: Yeah I mean, it's not a hard job. It's an honour to be a Dally M judge. Yeah. and so just All you got to do is watch the game of football, <laughs> which presumably you'd be doing anyway as a football fan.
0: But so in the midst of this losing run, it was announced that Mundane had signed with Brisbane, which as we discussed, that was announced with Mundane being paraded with a Brisbane jersey, Gordon Tallis there to present him with a birthday cake, which like was always going to create a furor and just doesn't serve you know, either Brisbane or St. George Well. But you can just see that deflating St. George when, you know, so much has happened already. Now they've got this to deal with. But my favourite thing about the mundane signing is the way, like, further evidence that for all the talk about vision, Super League was going to be driven by self-interest just like any other rugby league competition. So Shane Edwards came out and said, I know we'll be criticized for signing both Gordon and Anthony, but as chief executive, what am I to do when they approach us? Should I turn them away? I don't know any chief executive who would do that. He's right, but you know, all we heard from the Super League clubs was that they believe in, in it so much that they're going to be you know, distributing their players across the league to ensure you had an even dispersal of talent.
1: Perhaps they should have signed Gus. I mean, I wouldn't poach (laughs) any players off these seven clubs.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Gus is the one coach who would have stuck to that. Wayne Bennett came out with you know some similar comments. He said, sure, we think of this club first, but why shouldn't we? We have fans and sponsors to consider and would have been derelict in our duty if Mundine and Talis were available and wanted to come to us and we didn't act. Which is, you know, it's self-interest and that's the game they're in. I'm I'm not going to kill Bennett or the Broncos for it. But at the same time, he made some good points. He said, before others start to criticise us for what we've done, they should ask themselves why are these players leaving? Does their club offer them the same conditions, the same facilities, the same opportunities? Is their club as well run? It's a fact of life that the most talented players in the competition want to go to the leading clubs.
1: Remember that time you told me about, um, or told the listeners as well, about Gus saying to Fitler, a player of your calibre, should only be signing with East or Canterbury? Yeah. That shook me a little bit because I always think everyone's in with a chance, you know, salary cap, But in reality, no one's going, you know what? The Tigers look good, you know? like
0: Yeah, like that's exactly right. And it's you can turn it around, and I think the Roosters are the best example of that. But, you know, it's really hard to do. And it also makes you realise that clubs who, you know, talk about this strength and, you know, oh, Brisbane, we don't buy players. You know, Bennett was saying that, Mundine and Talis were, you know, the first big name players they've bought since Glenn Lazarus. Like most of the squad was developed in house, and you know, clubs like that they always like to trumpet it as you know some kind of virtuous thing. But like, there are different ways to build clubs, and not every club can do it in the same way. Like, there's obvious reasons for why Brisbane are able to do that when East can't, you know, and East have to think of a different way to do it.
1: And Saints have to pinch Dean Reaper from Cronulla. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But with that unpleasantness aside, there was a season to save, and anyone listening to this knows there is only one way to save a season, and that is with an honesty session. You could do it in the middle of the field, you could do it at sea. The dragons did it in a way I haven't heard talked about before. It was described by Ian Heads as a last supper. What? What? <laughs> A last summer meeting between players in early August, with players determining they would make the very most out of what was left of the season, in the knowledge that at the end of the, of it there would be a big split and things would never be the same again.
1: I mean, that should have been implied, but until you say it out loud in an honesty session, it doesn't really exist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it works. So the Dragons went on to win eight of their last nine regular season games. To finish seventh and set up a grand final run that we're going to talk about in the concluding episode of this chapter. Part of that was no doubt fueled. There was the honesty session. There was also the Legends Day, where in July at Cogra for a game against Western Suburbs, a host of old legends were in attendance. So Proven, Raper, you know, Rod Reddy was back. Uh, A number of club greats were there. Uh, One who wasn't was Chang, who was branching out from the Filipino bar game and was turning tour guide. So in the Rugby League week, Sherlock wrote, (laughs) From the Philippines come news that the great Chang Langlands, a useful fullback of some years back, is getting into the tour business. With the people at Philippine holidays, Chang is offering fully escorted tours of the Philippines, accompanied by the likes of himself, Arthur Beetson and John Peard.
1: All right. <laughs> I would think if you're gonna like hire a tour guide that maybe you know a sixty year old pot um irritable old prick with questionable behavioral practices and two other ex footballers <laughs> wouldn't be the ones you'd get.
0: Can you imagine like Chang just like openly despising everyone on the bus, not <laughs> not saying a word
1: to him. It'd be all right playing cards with um Kid and uh, Artie, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, um, is anyone gonna book the hotels? The bus, <laughs> and lo- that's hysterical.
0: I know if anyone listening knows any more about this. If you went on one of Chang's tours, please, please, please get in touch. I need to know more, but we'll leave Chang and the Philippines and get back to Legends Day at Cogra. Billy Smith was said to have enjoyed himself at the Legends breakfast which I think that was just implied. I don't think it needed to be included in the story. <laughs> but this day, which also happened to be the 200th game of Ricky Walford, was a big day for the Dragons. And and the old guys were really keen to be able to sing the victory song with the team in the dressing rooms after the match. And the current players lived up to their end of the bargain, won the match, and as the Herald re- reported... Ghosts from the past wafted in to rub shoulders with the current breed to sing the club's victory song. The fact that the song was led by Norm Proven and Jeff Hardy with the likes of Billy Smith, John Raper, Johnny King and Reg Gasnier bellowing away lifted the 24-16 win to a higher plane.
1: That's beautiful.
0: And with that, the Dragons were on their way marching to the grand final of 1996 which we are going to discuss in the next and concluding part of this chapter. So if you are able, I suggest watching that grand final in preparation and any other of the semi-finals in the lead-up, we're going to be discussing them all. But with that, that is this episode. So thank you for listening and we will speak to you next time. Toodaloo.